This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. This month, the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast welcomes author Carrie Pack. Hi, Carrie. Hi, nice to be here. Carrie's YA novel, Girls on the Side, raises the question, just how do we define historical fiction? I want to explore that a bit later in the podcast, but for now, why don't you tell us a bit about the book? Sure. Um, Girls on the Side is actually kind of, um, it, well, it takes place during the 90s, during uh, the Riot Girl movement. So if anybody's familiar with that uh, particular wave of feminism, uh, these girls are very into their punk music and their zines and, and uh, their feminist ideals. And uh, the main character, Tabitha, of course, kind of falls in love a couple times over the course of the book and discovering her own um, identity as a bisexual woman um, and, and understanding kind of what that means for her. So it's a coming of age story. And uh, apparently the 90s are historical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, an interesting question of categories. You'd said that when we first talked that because it's set in the 90s, you know, for, for a YA market, that's considered historical. Is that because it's history in terms of the target readership or history because you had to research it as history? Predominantly the first part of that. You know, I lived it. I mean, I was a, uh, my main character is only a year older than me. So um, uh-huh. I, I was very familiar with, I mean, I, I used descriptions of the lockers in the locker room of my, of the, the, of the gym of my high school. But my publisher was the one that said, well, this is historical YA. And I was like, historical, it's the 90s. But, you know, which, I mean, when, you're, when someone calls your own high school experience historical, I mean, it just, you kind of go, oh, gosh, I didn't realize I'd gotten old. Yeah, I had that, that experience with the, uh, another recent interview where the, the author was saying, it's like, well, this is set in the 70s, so it's really historical. And I'm thinking, it's like, oh, my God, that's, that's me. That was, that was my college years. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And I think when we're talking about YA, it's kind of like you need to view it like classic cars, like anything over, you know, 20 20 to 25 years ago is considered a classic. Um, Because if you're talking specifically about teenagers, they weren't even alive. It is historical to them. So, so yeah, I mean, when you classify it that way, my book also got cross categorized, though, as women's fiction, because there's a whole, you know, a a lot of the um, people that I or my contemporaries definitely were very into it because they remembered the time period. So, you know, it's, it's, um, but in general, when you talk about publishing, historical tends to be anything from pre mid century. So like you're talking World War II or earlier. So it kind of just depends. I was gonna say my, my personal definition is it's not historical if I was alive. (laughs) I think that's all of us, which is probably why in YA it it goes that way. But, um, Uh But I mean, I did have to do some research, so it's not like I didn't do any. But but again, when you've lived the experience, it's a little easier to draw from your own personal. And and since with girls on the side, I I basically was giving myself a do over because I didn't <laughs> know that I was bisexual uh, until I was thirty five. Uh-huh. So I didn't get to live my high school years as 
you know, an out um, queer person. I, and I, I didn't know it was an identity that I could have, although I knew I wasn't a lesbian. You know what I mean? Like I knew enough mm-hmm. to know that, but I couldn't figure out why, why am I attracted to my female friends? But I didn't, you know, <laughs> but because I was also attracted to, you know, boys my age, I thought, well, obviously I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not gay. So it's, you know, and that was yeah. the only two options that I knew of. So I obviously wanted to give Tabitha her own experience that I didn't get to have. Well, thinking about that and thinking about it as historical fiction, because, okay, this is me as an old person talking, but, you know, it seems like sexuality and identity culture just changes minute to minute these days. Oh, and yeah. so the 90s are a different country in terms of kids these days. But so was it a challenge to try to represent the experience of sexuality in the 90s? in a way that would both be true to the era and make sense to today's readers. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, anytime you're writing historical, I think it's a good idea to remember that even though you're writing about a a time period in the past, you're still writing for a contemporary audience. Mm -hmm. So while there are things that might have occurred in that time period that at that time were widely accepted, we know in a modern society they're not. So that covers everything from, you know, if you're writing historical and using the N-word to, um, or like what I had to do, which was, and and this is really minor uh, for most of us, but for a modern audience, I had the word, you know, when I was a kid, there was a lot of, oh, that's lame. Um, but, you know, I had someone point out to me that that was ableist language. Now, for me, that's still something that I say. And I feel, and knowing that now, I try to control it. But that it's could be construed as offensive uh, among modern audiences. So I went back and took, took that out. But would a girl in the 90s have said that? Well, yeah, absolutely. she absolutely would have. And so, I mean, it's not, it's, I don't want to ever tell anyone, oh, you can't write that. But I think it's important to consider the modern sensibility when you're, um, or the contemporary sensibility, I guess yeah. I should say, when you're, <laughs> when you're writing historically, because, you know, there's, there's, there's language that would have been historically accurate. And then there's language that's just harmful. And you can still be historically accurate enough without using modern language that that wouldn't necessarily be been of used in that period. Like, for example, uh, I had someone ask me very early on, uh, if I was going to address trans issues, because that was a Yeah, that's what I was just right. about to bring up. It's another minefield where the attitudes and the language and the, the just the understanding has changed so radically in the last couple decades. Oh, absolutely. And and someone asked me if I was going to address that. And I said, well, you know, I didn't want to because it was such a different time. Uh, even the terminology was different. But what I did do was put in some subtle contextual things about gender identity. You know, I have, um, because I was really wanting to focus on the bisexuality aspect of it, I wanted to give examples of different expressions of that. And mm-hmm. I have one one girl who is very much equally interested in all genders. She does not really, you know, if she falls for the person, she falls for the person. So in modern terms, she might refer to herself you know, she might even choose pansexual, maybe, mm-hmm. even though I think bisexual still covers that. But she she might choose that. Whereas I had another character who was probably more demisexual when it comes to women, but also used the term bisexual. She definitely had to have a you know a connection with a woman, but she certainly could appreciate and and would not rule out a relationship with a woman, but was predominantly attracted to men. 
and then my my main character Tabitha, who's predominantly attracted to women, mm-hmm. uh, and and only incidentally, occasionally, kind of would find herself, you know, uh, interested in a guy. So I wanted to give those representations, and also when exploring the gender identity, uh, one of the girls is very very feminine. Um, and another character is a little more butch and the kind of, I don't want to say struggles. They didn't really struggle with it, but the criticism they would get from their, their friends about that, you know, the one girl being so hyper feminine and wearing nail polish and makeup and, and, oh, you can't possibly be queer. And, and the mm-hmm. other one being butch, you know, you can't, you know, uh, you're, you're too masculine. And, mm-hmm. and so those kinds of conversations were had, but yeah, it's, it's not, for me, I didn't know that I didn't think that I could do it authentically and, and in a way that wouldn't also be harmful to the trans community. Yeah, yeah, that is a consideration. The, the issue of identities and how we talk about those, those identities, like you were talking about, you know, well, bisexual versus pansexual, and, and it means different things to different people. And I know that in you talking about your own podcast, so you have a podcast called Bi Sci-Fi. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you first said to me when you talked about it was, well, it's not just bi and it's not just sci-fi. <laughs> and yeah. and I have that same thing with my podcast because I've got the word lesbian emblazoned over everything because for mm-hmm. me, it's a good brand. But but I always make it very clear that I'm not talking about the, the narrow definition of lesbian. I'm using that to stand in for you know women whose primary emotional and romantic relationships are oriented towards other women within the context of the story that I'm talking about. But right. that's way too wordy. Right. <laughs> so thinking about that kind of, I don't want to say labeling because that, that brings up a different way of thinking about it, but branding. Thinking about branding and um, what are the the difficulties you have in in using buy as a brand on your podcast and trying to communicate that you have a broader interest. I mean, I think you you kind of said it. I think exactly what you said, which is you have to kind of give the short description and then the long description. Um, ultimately it, it came down to a branding thing for me. I'd had, um, a Twitter chat that I'd started with a group of friends that was called by sci-fi because we all identify mostly, I think, I think almost all the authors identified as bisexual and, or had main characters in our novels that were bisexual. And so we had started a Twitter chat and by sci-fi was a great, you know, it's, it's, it's a rhyme, it rhyme. first of all. So yeah. <laughs> and I had been for ever trying to come up with an idea for a podcast. And I just felt like, you know, I, I don't know what I would want to talk about. I don't know. And um, I just realized I had such an interest in speculative fiction in general. I, I wanted, I kept the brand that I already had going. Um, and, and I'm, and I identify as bisexual, so it worked for me, but, and also queer sci-fi was taken. So yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Scott Coatsworth and uh, and Angel Martinez yes, I'm, I'm, have a wonderful I'm part of the Facebook group for that. Yeah, absolutely. The Facebook group they have a wonderful uh, blog and, and online presence and and it's great branding. Um, but I can't steal their name. And then you know there's nothing it can't like queer spec fic. You know it doesn't roll off the tongue. So yes, there's always the long explanation. What I always say is that it's queer positive speculative fiction. So any mm-hmm. you know anything if the author is an ally if if they write and they write spec fic if the author identifies as queer and writes spec fic if the characters are queer. In, in the spec fic, I, I will cover it and because I think that for me, the biggest draw to speculative fiction of all kinds is the possibility for everything and nothing to exist at once. <laughs> so if, if you identify as a gender or 
trans or gay or, you know, or just identify as queer, there is a place for you in that realm of fiction. So the long and short of it is that I wanted to keep my branding from the chat and it was a catchier name, but that Mm -hmm. I always have to explain it. (laughs) Always. So, So what do you envision as the scope of your show? Why don't you talk about it a little bit? Yeah, sure. You know, right now, it's mostly just me and and other authors chatting about what we write and what we read. But I hope to eventually uh, also have, you know, fans come on and talk about what they love and things that they're doing. And and I had someone message me wanting to talk about the new Doctor Who, because uh, now that now that the doctor is a woman, that that canonically makes her, you know, pansexual or bisexual. So that uh, opens up a whole new realm. You know, um, the doctor is married to a woman. Uh, So (laughs) it's and has been multiple times in in canon. So I think that that for me is, you know, I want to explore how fans look at other spec fic. And I'd like people to come on and talk about movies and and, and television as well, um, comics and things like that. So right now it's really geared toward the written word, towards fiction. But, you know, that doesn't mean that I won't go there in the future. But for right now, that's that's kind of it's a lot of authors talking about what they write and why they write it and and how that reflects our our ideal, I think, of what queer fiction should be. So you've written both the you know, whether you want to call it contemporary historical for girls on the side, but also you've mm-hmm. written a pair of speculative books. I know. I think right. one of them is just about to come out or just came out or came out in August. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I was interested in what's your experience of the different, you know, different flavors of the book world between speculative fiction and realistic fiction. Um, in my experience, my, this is my personal experience. I don't want to say that this is necessarily a universal universality, but that I found it harder to kind of break into adult speculative fiction than it was in any place in, in YA. The YA community was much more welcoming to my book. Uh, now, I don't know. That could simply be the, the, the way that it was pitched, the way that it was marketed. I, I couldn't even tell you. But um, so for me, that's kind of where where I found the difference to be. And I think because even though it is technically like we were talking about it being historical, it's contemporary historical, it's more modern. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not the element of, of um, speculation on top of it. Whereas my other uh, that duology is time travel. Um, you know, both have won awards, both the historical contemporary and the, the time travel. Um, but the, the YA book sold a lot better. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if one market is, is clamoring more for the FF YA, because that's certainly a place where, you know, the YA community is right now very, very into, you know, their women loving women stories. Uh, mm-hmm. so that, that could be it too. I, I don't know, but, um, <laughs> that was, that's been my experience, but both technically are contemporary. I mean, they both, again, one is contemporary historical and the other one is contemporary science fiction, but they take place in very modern contemporary societies. So, uh-huh. so what was it like, uh, to research this book? I mean, I know you said that you're, that, that it, it represents your life to some extent, but what parts of it did you have to research? Well, I had to, I mean, the easiest stuff was, of course, looking into music and looking into my cultural references of the time period. But I think my favorite thing that I had to look into was, I'm writing these zines from the point of views of characters who are having these, basically, if you've never read a zine, especially ones from the 90s, very much like just screed about 
whatever, you know, uh, the writer wanted to rant about. And there's one um, that is actually my favorite uh, segment that I wrote in the whole book. And it's called Of Mice and Menses. And my character (laughs) is ranting about how her period has been commodified. In other words, it's the idea that she menstruates every month is is both asexual and hypersexualized. And she has to pay for these things that she doesn't understand and are obviously created by men. And I had to look up when wings were put on maxi pads. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the entire history of, of experimental menstrual products that I right? went through. You know, and this is a generation that, thank God, did not have to deal with the sanitary belt, right? Um Although I am very familiar because my mom, because my mom obviously dealt with that. Um, and, uh, you know, just a variety of, of different things and the horror of reading the packaging on tampons and worrying about toxic shock syndrome. And, mm-hmm. but the, the, the thing for me that's always been baffling is the wing on a maxi pad. It serves no purpose. It does not keep it from, from like leaking. All it does is get caught in your pubic hair and stick to your thighs. Pardon, pardon my, my, my bluntness, but especially if you don't, if you don't have a thigh gap, that thing is just going to stick to things. And, um, so literally that's what my character is venting about, but I did have to look it up and thankfully they were added to pads in the eighties. So I was not like, I I was pretty sure that they, I, I remembered them being on pads when I was a teenager, but I couldn't be sure. So I had to look it up and it was sometime in the eighties, but obviously that was invented by a man, obviously someone who had never worn a maxi pad in their lives. (laughs) Anything else you had to research in that way to to get the the details right, the realism? Well, the fun, the the most fun, I think, was was getting to read um, old zines. Um, There's a book called, uh, I believe it's called the Riot Girl Collection. I'm trying to see if I can see it on my shelves here. But it's literally a collection of zines that has been compiled. And it's everything from some of the more famous ones like Bikini Kill and, you know, those very early Riot Girl zines to some obscure ones. Uh, there's some in there from, you know, black women, other people of color, and and all of the elements of that. And for me, that was the most fun was going back through and reliving it through that, that you know, first person historical accounts is essentially what you're reading, you know. It's sort of proto-blogging in a way. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I when I explain what zines are to to teenagers and young adults, I teach college right now, and so, you know, my my students weren't alive. They're they're they were born in ninety five, ninety six. Mm-hmm. So um, they when I talk to them about it, you know, I always say, well, it's 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 blogging, but it was before the inter- internet was wide enough spread that people blogged pretty you know pretty much, mm-hmm. and so it was the bridge between journaling and blogging, and and so yes, photocopying your clip together magazine pieces and type or handwritten, you know, journal entries and things like that. Um, so yeah, but it was, it's, so it's fun to read, you know, these young women and it was, and it was mostly driven by, by young people, you know, young people in the punk scene were the for the forefront of these zines and, and, um, you know, I mean, zines have a longer history than that, of course. Like yeah. The first fanzines in the science fiction community. Yeah, absolutely. Go, going all the way back to the original Star Trek series, but um, and maybe even prior to that, but but to see again, it's it's like when you, if you're researching past presidents and you pull out their their letters and you can go find letters from you know Thomas Jefferson and his journal entries and things like that. It's the same thing, you know. But it, instead of instead of it being about the day to days of a politician, it's about the day to day of a teenage girl, mm-hmm. and it's amazing. One of the best, uh, matter of fact, the epigraph in my book is a quote from. 
a book about Riot Girl, and um, it is, you know, um, the 90s were a rough time to be a girl. I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, so little has changed. And it's true. That's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is that, yeah, that was 20 years ago, but you would be surprised how little has changed in those intervening, in that intervening time for, for young women to be, they're taunted, they're sexual, they're over-sexualized, they're infantilized and, and treated like their opinions are the bottom of the barrel. You know, it's always like, oh yeah, it's some teenage girls. I mean, we saw it with uh, Taylor Swift, you know, she, she mm-hmm. voices her political opinion and there's other issues with that. But the primary thing that people were pointing out was like, and I think there was, um, who was the politician that was like, oh, well, 13 year old girls can't vote. Her fans aren't 13 and, and yeah. that's not an insult. You know, 13 mm-hmm. year old girls are allowed to have opinions. <laughs> yeah. Any uh, other projects that you're working on currently that you are able and willing to talk about? Well, I mean, I have, I'm all, I'm still trying to finish up a contemporary horror novella, but in the back of my mind, I do have another historical I want to, I want to conquer. I, back in my, uh, recent fandom past, I wrote a historical, um, MM for a fandom that I was in. And I, and, and what sparked it was it takes place during the Gilded Age, uh, which is basically the late Victorian period, but in America. Mm-hmm. And, what I love about that society was how easy, and this is, ta- I'm talking, this is the time period where Oscar Wilde was, was at his peak of, of his running around Europe. Looking at the way society was structured was that men socialized with men and women socialized with women, uh, and you only were really with the opposite sex once you were married. And how easy that really was for uh, gay, lesbian, and bisexual individuals to have relationships, have companionships with with um, same gendered. Um, oh yeah, partners. I I am constantly trying to impress this upon my listeners and my blog readers that that you don't have to go through shenanigans to get your two same sex people together because that would be the norm of life for them. Absolutely, it would not be, and, and one of the reasons why uh, the only reason Oscar Wilde was ever quote caught was was kind of because. Um, you know, a noble had kind of a personal vendetta. Um, but, you know, otherwise, it was not rare that, you know, no one thought twice about him hanging out with young men all the time. It was just, and also they didn't have the, the way we do in contemporary society, that uh, view of, of homosexuality. There was not that it wasn't defined. So it wasn't really, you know, if you had a gay uncle, it was just kind of like, oh, well, he's just that way. And really was just, we just a don't talk about it. Bachelor. A That's confirmed bachelor. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> My mom tells a great story from when she uh, lived with uh, her, I think probably in the sixties and they had neighbors down the street who were called, she called the bachelors and they were, she, she didn't realize until many years later that they were a gay couple. <laughs> um, but, but because again, it was just the, it was a don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. And, and we just didn't talk about it, but there were quite a few young men and young women who, who engaged in these kind of relationships. And so I kind of was thinking I wanted to maybe make it a, a two parter of, you know, a gay couple and a lesbian couple kind of having that opportunity to, to explore, these relationships because of the structure of society and and how that was you know not noticed as an impropriety because they were forced into these same sex social groups so I, that's that's my that's my dream project <laughs> if you get around to writing the uh, lesbian couple uh, drop me a note let me know <laughs> definitely definitely so other than your podcast which i will put the links to in the show notes where can listeners find you online 
Sure. The easiest way probably is I'm on Twitter. I'm at Carrie Pack on Twitter. And uh, that's probably the easiest way because I, you know, it's, it's a good direct communication. But basically, I'm on all social media. So anywhere you can find a person named Carrie Pack, it's likely me. <laughs> likely. There are others out there. They're scientists, though. They're much cooler than me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I found a website for you as well, uh, probably linked from your Twitter. So I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Carrie, for joining us this month. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.